0: the Kinky Boys Podcast, exploring one kink at a time. And welcome to the Kinky Boys Podcast. I'm Craig, and today we have a special guest, Arza, who will be talking to us about the relationship between fursuits and fetish sex, and all the politics and fun and everything else therein. Uh, please go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Well, uh, let's see. What can I say? Uh, I've been a member of the leather community in general mm-hmm. since I was actually not old enough to walk into a bar. I was mm-hmm. 18, but looked old enough to, to get through the doors uh primarily have been a part of the leather community, but I also have connections to mm-hmm. the rubber and latex communities. Um what else can I say about myself? Currently reside over on the west coast of the United States, uh which has a fantastic fetish scene, which is what draws mm-hmm. so many of us out
0: here. I have heard and that quite a lot. <laughs> I was
1: I was blown away. There is so much of the old guard that's still left here as well mm-hmm. as the new guard. Uh, I actually attended a Leatherman's Potluck uh, that's held actually in town, in the tiny little town in which I live, uh, every few months. So I was really blown away. And our realtor is, a, is a, or was, a leather man when he helped us close on this house.
0: Oh, really? He,
1: oh, yeah, wow. he, he specializes in mm-hmm. helping to connect pinky members of the community with houses that have play spaces or things that can be repurposed as play spaces. That so, is
0: so cool. <laughs> he, He's, he's
1: really on the ball. I'll, I'll see if at some point he wants me to, to name drop for him. But uh, he he did a great job by us and connected us with all the right resources. So uh, I think that, that covers the basics. And yes, I am uh, also a furry and mm-hmm. a member of the fandom. And I think that's kind of what brings us to today's topic.
0: Uh, yes, it seems timely because there has been a news story that's broken about... Um... I'm not that familiar with uh, the American levels of politicians, but a local politician basically got outed as a furry.
1: Correct. Yeah, he. Uh, so to to give you some sense, being councilman of New Milford, Connecticut, is on par with just being a, a city council member. It's right. it's a very it's a very low tier thing. Uh, Trump was not taking his phone calls, but whose calls does he
0: take? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but th- the bottom line is, it's a very small. Town and in small American towns, everyone knows everyone and everyone knows everyone's business. And apparently, a member of the community uh, got a hold of some profile information from a furry Mm -hmm. fan fiction site. And once one and one got put together, and this member of the community figured out that it was his councilman, uh, Scott Chamberlain, who was associated with that profile. The member of the community then saw fit to open up a Facebook page and start a bit of a witch hunt and get the guy removed from office.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now a lot of people from what I've read cited not just the furry, but like the fact it was a furry, but also the fact that in his likes and dislikes, he noted he was ambivalent about and in rape. Now, to put this into context, this was a fan work site, so obviously it's like media, stories, stuff like that.
1: Correct. Uh, the website in question, S.O. Furry, is a, a very well-known repository mm-hmm. for furry you know, erotic fiction. And as such, as part of your profile, you sort of denote the topics you're interested in and the ones you absolutely mm-hmm. don't want to hear about. So, for example, if someone is into war, they could say, I'm very interested in receiving that information and, and seeing stories about that. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, they can denote that they don't want to see any of that. Please don't bring it to my attention. You'll, you'll probably upset me. Now, this is where he fell afoul of things a bit. The site does prompt you for how you feel about fiction regarding rape. And I think this has always been a controversial topic in in every adult community. There are some people who hold a very hard line that even play acting at rape is completely unacceptable and encourages the behavior and trivializes people who have been subject to real life rape. And then there are other people who say this is art. This is fiction. It's not real life. Of course, we don't condone real world rape. This is about fuzzy anthropomorphic animals in fantasy or science fiction situations there's there's no association with that in reality but the bottom line is in america wherever it comes to sex the most puritanical people tend to be the loudest and most often heard voices and it's it's very hard as a politician too to say no wait a minute i I was only for like the fantasy rape that's not a a platform that's going to get you elected in much of any kind
0: no, it can be quite uncomfortable. Although I was reading about, a while ago, a congressman that came out about um, having an open relationship. And this was without any prompting or he wasn't being blackmailed. He literally put it up on his campaign page on the About Me section in the section marked Scandals. And he basically just laid out flat, my wife and I have an open relationship, we can freely see other people... This is not a secret for us, nor an issue.
1: That was that was a savvy move on that politician's mm. part to try and get ahead of the curve. The problem is, if someone else finds it out first, oh yeah, they assume yeah they assume you were concealing mm. it. If you get ahead of the curve and you say no, really, this is the situation, and we're we're telling you that up front, it it really pulls a lot of the starch out of the opposition. They they have a hard time saying, well, look at what he's concealing when he can say. Look at what I posted way before you said that.
0: Exactly. I mean, there's a leather man who used to run an eagle bar, now running for city council, I believe. I'm trying to remember where it was. Uh... Uh, you
1: know, I want to say that I heard that Jeffrey Payne was was doing that, but maybe that's just because he's, like, awesome and into everything in the Dallas area.
0: I think, no, I think that may be him, yes.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he and my ex are on very... Good terms. Uh-huh. He's well. It's a, it's a small. Co- it's a small country of yeah. 300 million people. Everyone <laughs> knows everyone. But uh, no, he's uh, from all accounts, and I don't, and I haven't lived in Dallas for decades. Mm-hmm. Jeff Payne has represented the leather community very well. And uh, oh, I see the article now. Thank, thank you, Google, mm-hmm. for, for being speedy. <laughs> he's actually running for governor.
0: Oh, right, much higher up.
1: He is, and I, I hope he has a chance because the current governor of Texas, Greg Abbott is uh, I'm I'm going to bite my tongue so many times I'm going to have marks for weeks, but he's not a very ethical or uh, (laughs) just person. He's actually, along with his cohort in crime, the attorney general at the time, uh, been trying to revisit the issue of gay marriage so they can try and create a court case and get things back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, where they where they think that the conditions might be more favorable now that Trump has had an a- a appointee. Yeah,
0: yeah, I can imagine. So,
1: yeah, I hope uh, I hope Mister Payne does well in his campaign. I'd vote for him if I were eligible.
0: Oh, well, if we do have any listeners in the area, please go vote. Yeah. So, obviously, what's happened to this council member is a microcosm of what furries often have to do, which is generally speaking, if you're out about being a furry, you don't talk about the sex part.
1: It is. It's, it's like Fight Club, really. <laughs> the, yeah. the the one and only repeated rule is don't talk about it. And uh, there was, in fact, um, a documentary that actually made it to Netflix mm-hmm. for a while. I, I checked before this podcast. It's rolled off of there, but it does appear to be available on YouTube. And that documentary is called Fursonas, uh, spelled kind of like it sounds, F-U-R-S-O-N-A-S. And fursona is a, a slang term in the furry community for your anthropomorphic animal character, right? Mm-hmm. So in my case, my fursona would be a North American black bear. For a lot of other people, it's a fox or a wolf. And the documentary starts off talking about kind of that schism in the community where we try to keep fursuiting out of the public light in terms of the adult aspects, but we try to keep the the charitable stuff in the forefront of people's minds. The fursuiters visiting hospitals to cheer up kids the fursuiters raising money for animal rescue charities and this has led to a sort of schizophrenia in a way people are very embarrassed when the subject of adult fursuiting comes up and they are very eager to talk themselves quite frankly straight through the floor into the earth's core whenever it comes to all the good Mm -hmm. things and there's this idea that the two can't be reconciled that because the furry fandom encompasses things that are supposed to be family-friendly and may involve minors, that we have to completely go into denial about the fact that there are forums which are strictly for adults, which are strictly for fursuits meant for adults, and which don't involve any of that.
0: Well, yeah, I think it is the fact that, obviously, fursuiters and furries often go for a very cartoon aesthetic and you know, they're sort of like theme park mascots a lot of them in just the way they look.
1: Well, that can vary. Like people have different tastes in leather mm-hmm. or other gear there's a spectrum when it comes to fursuit realism. Some people like, you know, suits that are extremely what we would call toony. They, they look mm-hmm. like a cartoon. They have the big oversized eyes and they have the adorable features. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who go skew more toward the horror movie werewolf aesthetic or something more realistic. Um, there's a, a group of Uh, werewolves uh, Mm -hmm. up in the, well, formerly in the California area. They've they've sort of had a diaspora, and now some of them are over in Pennsylvania. And they make for a living fursuits that are actually probably on par with what you'd see for a movie, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sort of the the latex mask, the paws with articulated pads. They Mm -hmm. they have claws that plug in, and they cost about $10,000 a pop. Jeez. And people have cheerfully paid that for many years. Mm-hmm. They're they're well noted, uh, well known, and well regarded fur suit makers. But they have a very different aesthetic than you would see in, say, maybe, you know, a, a, a toonier sort of cartoon cat sort of suit.
0: I mean, I've never really seen them presented. It's always been I have a handful of fairy friends, and it has always mostly been the cartoon end of the spectrum. I've like been exposed to. Uh,
1: if I may ask, because there's usually one furry friend in the fetish community that everyone Mm -hmm. seems to have in common. Is one of those people Smash Grey Wolf?
0: Uh, I don't believe so, no.
1: Okay, I was going to say, because if he is, he kind of represents both of those extremes, because he actually owns one of those uh, fursuits that was made by at the time. They they called themselves uh, Verdun Productions or Verdun Manor or Running Wolf Productions. They've had Mm -hmm. a few different incarnations, and those suits are definitely targeted at the horror and haunt style Mm -hmm. of of setting um in fact they are very involved with the haunted house community and they absolutely do not want to be associated with the fetish aspects of what some people use their suits for and that becomes very complicated for them sometimes
0: i can imagine
1: yeah it's a fine line to walk
0: i can kind of see where this is all coming from as sort of an overreaction because obviously some people is just about first some people it's a you know, it can be quite a sexual outlet and obviously you have to overcompensate because especially in American media, when furries have gotten exposed, it is always about the sexual aspect that oh, seems yeah. to be zoomed in on. All the fairies I know complained to high, high heaven about, um, what was it, CSI when they did their fairy con murder thing.
1: Well, and, and part of that was because, and this is not something people talk about a lot, they had a consultant who came from the fandom and- you better believe that when word got out that he had, number one, been working with CBS on this, and number two, that CBS had gotten so many things wrong or strange. That guy was not really welcome anymore, anywhere. The fetish community was like, what the hell, man? That's that's not anything at all like the reality. And the, the non-fetish side of the fandom was like, you're making us look bad. So that's that's part of this media aversion you see as well. Uh First rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club, and people who talk about Fight Club tend to get beaten out of Fight Club.
0: I mean, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure – I obviously, I don't know, but I get the impression he probably tried his best, and advisors can only do so much. They're not the writers of the program.
1: Right. And and some of the things that that went on, there was an interesting reaction because people said, that is really inaccurate and wrong and I'll tell you why is because if I could do that I totally would do that. And uh the thing that's most often referenced is someone had a fursuit that was lined with latex. Uh so the 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 victim in the in the story has a fursuit that's got a complete latex inner lining. So it we won't go into CSI level detail but let's just say it holds in the autopsy. Oh <laughs> and and people were like you can't stitch or or glue latex properly to to fursuits. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> so it it there's there's that Again, that schizophrenia going back and forth with that totally doesn't happen. Not that I would
0: get happy. I mean, talking about this, it sort of brings up uh, memories of last year um, in the UK. that aired a very high publicity documentary on Puppy Boys.
1: Uh, the one with Sentai Spot. Uh,
0: yes, that's the one.
1: It's made it over to this side of the pond as well by now.
0: Oh, really? Oh, brilliant.
1: I've actually chatted with him a bit, and and I I have some thoughts on that later, but you first.
0: Well, I was going to say, it brings up two things to me. Obviously, on the run-up, there was this huge discussion, and you know, everyone was talking about whether it's good for puppies to take part in this or not. And obviously, it divided into the two main arguments was, if you don't, they're just going to misrepresent it, whereas if you take part, you'll have a degree of control. And the other half was, this is private, and I don't want it being talked about, and I think, obviously, anyone that is going to take part in the documentary probably will be edited and presented in a wholly unsavory way.
1: As Flake. Yeah. And, honestly, that was our concern over here in America when we started hearing about it. You know, our first—first of all, and let's be very, very honest about the roots of puppy play. Puppy play didn't spring from the earth completely unbidden. That— comes from the furry fandom we were making Mm -hmm. leather masks and doing all of that very early on and then like a lot of other things cultural appropriation that appropriate for the furry fandom i don't know if that term even applies Uh, but it's
0: i'd I'd say more evolution than appropriation
1: i would i would go with that as well It, it caught on in a way that a lot of us didn't expect and so when we heard that this british guy that none of us knew about was going to go start Talking about the the family business on Channel 4, we were all very, you know, we we don't even start at skeptical anymore. We go into full on this will be a disaster mode because we've had so many bad things happen to us due to press coverage. And then I have to admit, you watch that documentary and there are things people harp on, you know, and some of them I think are quite unfair to The spot thing. people pick on other people just because they're different
0: well overall well yeah it's the uh what is it the tall poppy syndrome
1: yeah and i think that people getting involved in mechanics of his relationship that's none of our business that's even even though he put it on tv whether that was a contributing factor or not to how things went that's spots business that's not our business
0: I was going to say that is the most uncomfortable moment I've had watching that documentary is when they're clearly Spot and his owner and his ex-girlfriend, they're not that comfortable and the documentary makers are clearly trying to pry more out of them when it's... They're 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 making clear they're not happy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're hunting for dirt. And because... Dirt gets ratings, but come on, if we all had a camera crew following us around. I know of no one on this earth who has had exactly one perfect shining relationship without any blemishes, and they all lived happily ever after in a house of marzipan.
0: I don't think it's even really dirt. I think it's more like, for for a good documentary, you need to sort of artificially create a story arc. You'll see it on reality TV all the time where people are, like, producers edit it, and they prompt things in the right direction to give people an arc. And obviously, they were trying to make spots, personal relationships, the emotional and, center.
1: And and I think I, I understand why they did that, because I felt like what they were trying to do is lend some gravitas to the, the puppy competition so that however it went, you were invested in whether Spot won or lost. Yeah. And and I, I think that there were other ways to accomplish mm-hmm. that, because it is a very it's a very interesting documentary. And I walked away from it and I didn't know what to think about it for a while. For a while, I was still in. I don't know that we needed all of this to like go out. And then I thought about it some more and I watched it another time. Um, Since we obviously do not get Channel 4 in America, I had to do a little bit of magic and load it onto our media server so Mm -hmm. we could even watch it. After I watched it again and thought about it, I'm like, you know, I need to just understand that this is not necessarily something that any one person controls and that everyone has the right to tell their own story. And I think that Spot did a pretty good job. Spot seems like he's trying very hard to represent the community mm-hmm. well, and i've I'm on his Twitter, and he and I have chatted about Eastim stuff in just in the brief interactions I've had with him. He seems like a a pretty you know okay guy uh, obviously i I only know him through the screen. We haven't hung out socially or had a drink or anything, but he's after a while, I came around to the idea that it's okay for him. And for anyone, really, to talk about their experiences, and we shouldn't be censoring.
0: No, I mean, I think it is important, like, if we ever hope for, like, to be more sexually liberated or just more tolerant of people's differences, we're going to have to be open and talk about them first.
1: And it's, it's a very different situation in Europe than it is in America. Um, it, a very different situation. We are not, for all of our, our fancy talk a very tolerant society at all. At um,
0: uh, You said it, not me.
1: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a, a very different example. Mm. Um, if I sound a little bit hoarse, it's because all of us have been choking on wood smoke here in the Portland metro area for about a week and change. There was a local kid, 15 years old, mm. who did something incredibly stupid. He was playing with fireworks during a burn warning at the very core of the most beautiful forest land in the Columbia River Gorge, places where people go to hike, even get married and stuff. And he set it ablaze. He has pretty much been the ignition source for about 15,000 acres of burning forest land. Mm -hmm. And the police know who did it. They're in contact with him and his family. They're cooperating. But they reversed course on their original decision to release his name, because here, even in very liberal Portland, Oregon and the surrounding area, they were afraid someone would kill him. Um, people are that angry. And he's 15. And when you're 15, you do dumb things. And that's not to pardon what he's done at all. Believe me, I am really super angry right there with everyone else. And there's been a lot of mm-hmm. grieving this week. But in America, we're very quick to lurch to both judgment and punishment it's it's what makes people feel like they're in control when things are out of control and that is entirely how our current government has come to be so i don't know that we'll ever get there at least not as uh, as we stand as a nation today
0: well i mean that isn't just an american thing it's always been british especially with our i mean it's weakening at the moment but we've always had a tabloid culture the main driving force in national discussions has always been um the red top or black top tabloids which again go for this very much burn the witch you know finds a hate figure to target and clamp onto and demand quote-unquote justice
1: our, our tabloids are along the same way but they have to have two elements bad photoshop work and celebrities mm. um and it's always like so-and-so seen at beach see how many thousands of pounds they've gained uh or you know so-and-so diverse, uh, divorcing such and such because of financial misappropriation and affairs. It's the same deal, just different manure in the sack.
0: Yeah, but they've always been a very strong political force here. I get the impression tabloids have always been recognized as junk media in the U.S. They're a
1: bit of a gag. They're always at the checkout when you're at the supermarket, and I think they were more fun when I was younger in the 80s because they just didn't even try. Batboy was a common figure on the Uh, cover-up
0: I remember... Whenever my family went to Florida for our vacations, I always remember picking up Bat Boy from what was it called? Uh,
1: I think that was in the Inquirer. I can't remember if he was yeah. Inquirer or one of the others, but you know, he became almost like a mascot for them. And that's the same mentality, I think, is that you know they don't take themselves seriously. But in recent years, they've they've become more about politics yeah. and celebrities, as opposed to Loch Ness monster seen having latte.
0: Exactly. But sorry, we veered of course, which is very uh, easy to uh, do. We have. It is.
1: It is. The reason
0: chat. what reminded me um about the puppy documentary is people's reactions afterwards of in the UK puppy community it became very split between it's social or sexual. And you had a lot of people starting to claim it's entirely social, they don't do it for the sexual aspect, um, and it's this very pure, innocent thing. And of course you had other people basically saying that's bullshit, just saying, no, I do this as part of my fetish sex. You know, for me, puppy play is a fetish despite the other aspects that I get with it, say, play, relaxation, socialisation. It is primarily sexual in function. I, I it, think
1: that... Oh, I'll
0: let you go. I was going to say... And it became very heated, but you talking about um, this attitude in the furry community and how many puppy boys came over from being a furry, or are uh, both, it's sort of given me a clue as to where this attitude grew from.
1: Oh, yeah. You, as part of getting this from the furry community, what came along with it is that same dichotomy. And I run into both types of pups. There are some mm-hmm. pups who literally just want to come over and be in gear and have their head mm-hmm. in my lap while we watch a movie and I pet them. And then there are others who want to be put to more extensive use, we'll say. Um, there are some people who want to just be four-legged pups. There are a lot of us in the furry fandom who have for a long time easily reconciled having anthropomorphic features for dogs. So there are even other types of play around that like I myself have a a leather bear mask that was custom made for me that I wear during scenes so there's there's a whole range of stuff in there and people are always at work trying to say well it has to be one thing or another to be a purist and you can trace this easily back to not just the furry fandom but the old guard versus the the new guard debate that is always sort of Mm -hmm. orbited around the leather community
0: and it does bring up something because wasn't there a documentary being made of a fur con
1: well here's the thing that uh, personas documentary that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that was one example of someone trying to do that. And what happened is they start off in that documentary and they're very focused on the idea of let's show fursuiters in a very balanced way mm-hmm. that they're not completely platonic, but at the same time that, you know, they're they're good everyday people and that there's nothing sinister going on here, even if there are adult things going on. And what happened is when they went to go and film at Anthrocon, which is a major convention in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, is run by an individual, Dr. Samuel Conway, whose uh, furry name is Uncle Kage. Mm
0: -hmm. Uncle
1: Kage reacted in the same way that most of us have come to expect uh, Dr. Conway to react. He has been a very strong advocate of whitewashing furry uh, in every aspect, and he's done, among other things, I don't know if you're familiar with Bad Dragon Toys. the uh...
0: Yes, a few of my friends have them, yes.
1: They're, they're much beloved by many communities, and he threw them off of the dealer's den. He felt that they, even with the measures they were taking to conceal their stuff, that it wasn't good enough, they just had to be gone. And there were many other businesses that he sort of denied as well, and this documentary team when they tried to set foot on Anthrocon property. The second he found out about it, he put them out on his on their ear and that's when the whole shape of the documentary changed and the second half of it became about, let's talk about how Kage's whitewashing the furry fandom and coaching people on how to lie to the media. Mm-hmm. So the teams that try to film at furry documentaries usually encounter very stiff resistance because furries have had nothing but sorrow with the media, honestly,
0: and it does. It's a bit of a paradox because you can never tell once the filming's been done how it's going to be turned out in the editing room.
1: But but with American media, you can usually guarantee that it's that the, the central core of they're all perverts and they're bad because that's what sells. Oh, yeah. That's that's what really sells.
0: The only way I could see this really going is if it was made by fairies for fairies. If the fairy community got together and said, "Okay, we are going to basically put out." Well, it would essentially be a documentary PR piece.
1: Now, you see, it's interesting because in that Persona's documentary, they have a lot of footage of Kage with his closed-door sessions where he's trying Mm -hmm. to counsel people on how to stay away from the media. And one of the very first things he touches on is a very common theme that you will hear throughout the community, which is there's always someone who thinks they're going to be the white knight on the charger who's going to ride up and be the one – to represent the fandom and say, this is how it really is, and all of you can now stop demonizing us because we're really great everyday people, and it always falls flat. And that is him ranting over and over again in that documentary on the same topic. They, they edited together several different sessions. And that is kind of the predominant attitude, is if someone gets that idea, the minute they step up and start to bring it to fruition, word gets out and people are like, sit the hell back down and, and shut up. You can be on the bus or you can be off the bus, but you can't be reporting about the bus.
0: Which I think is sad because, I mean, the only thing I can really liken it to is sort of like the gay rights movement where there was this big coming out is standard now. It is expected of you to, you know, in your later teen years, early adult years, come out and tell people close to you and around you, you are homosexual. This was not always the case. You know, you go back 50 years to 1950s, 60s, even 70s. It was meant to be something you would keep to yourself. Because yeah. if you came out, you would open up to harm, and it just wasn't a done thing. And the whole process of encouraging people to come out was so that gradually, over time, people realized they knew gay people themselves, and it became more transparent that all the stereotypes and horrible things people thought weren't true. And it only happened because a critical mass of people started coming out, and it became a regular thing to be visible.
1: And I think that's happening slowly via osmosis. But we also have, we have skeletons in our closet, number one. There are things that we ourselves are trying to handle and we don't feel like having outsiders poke into it would help. And I'll tell you one of those big things, and it has really become a raw nerve given the current political situation, not just here but globally, is there has always been a subset of the furry fandom that identifies with certain uniforms and iconography and Probably guess which one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that we find absolutely repellent. And that brings in the whole First Amendment versus common decency debate, you know, freedom of expression versus you're enabling people who are venerating a, a loathsome fascist regime from the past. It gets rough. It really gets rough. But the, you know, we've we finally managed to take a consensus that these people do not have any place displaying any of that iconography or those uniforms in public spaces just we don't want it there's no justification honestly if that's your thing keep it so far away from us that we don't even know it's happening because that is a line we've decided to draw where it's, it's honestly do you want to say that well if you want to cosplay as a nazi
0: uh, how
1: about no uh, do that maybe somewhere else far far away
0: yeah it's I mean, this has been going on for a while in the fetish community, and it's kind of different because it's more taboo play. Yeah, and it's sort of even when it makes me uncomfortable, I always have a personal policy of don't yuck someone else's yab. Mm. And so long as it is just in the bedroom and I don't have to see it, <laughs> as soon as it starts coming out into your social views and your ethical views, then you know,
1: just... some of them, some of them have gone that far, and that's why we get uncomfortable. You know, it. Oh yeah. The, I, the iconography alone is bad enough, but <clears throat> the problem becomes. A lot of these folks are really just trying to get attention and troll, and so they'll say anything they feel will get them attention, but that's Western civilization in the 21st century right mm-hmm. now. So we, we have to kind of, at some point as a community, say, well, what are our core values? What do we stand for? And I, I I have to say I'm also against kink shaming, but for a lot of those folks, it isn't even about kink, or even isn't even really about fully freedom of expression, it's about I, I'm giving you one long primal scream for attention.
0: Oh, yeah. And I keep running into arguments with people about trolls on the internet and people saying, especially with this whole alt-right thing coming to a basically boiling over now. Yeah. People saying, oh, these YouTube celebrities, they're not really Nazis. They're being ironic when they say. And it doesn't make a difference. There is no difference between doing it, quote-unquote, ironically and sincerely.
1: And and I'll say this too. Someone brought up a very good point to me some years ago and said, look, you can only be something ironically for so long before you are that thing. Uh, ironically, oh. yeah, you know, ironically is oh, totally. a pattern. Yeah. Ironically is a pattern means you are, not not that it's unexpected.
0: Well, they've done studies on this. They've literally tagged, I mean, this seems to get a bit unethical, but from my understanding, most people on these forums were anonymous to begin with. They've tagged certain forum members in, like, Reddit and other things who were, quote-unquote, being ironic, saying racist or fascist or horrible things. And they found a pattern of, within about a year, if you start off defending something ironically, you then start digging in your heels in arguments and start adopting it sincerely.
1: Yeah, and, and that's exactly the thing. is, It's one of those perception-does-in-some-way-shape-reality things. Once you perceive yourself to be on some way invested with that point of view it's a slippery slope from there
0: oh yes yeah. <coughs>
1: pardon me while I cough up more trees <laughs> out of my lungs <laughs> I just so, oh uh, you first I was going to say so at what point should we uh b- begin to get into more of the the safety and the
0: well the actual say,
1: mechanics yes mechanics yes. makes it sound a little too Iron Man
0: I know people that would quite enjoy to use Iron Man style suits in play it's... <laughs> you,
1: you laugh, and yet people have, have made mecha suits with, with furry characteristics. Um,
0: oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, they're uh, just plain mecha suits.
1: One person in particular actually made a uh, a Halo-themed suit for a con. It was a full suit of, of Master Chief Armor, and then he put cat ears and a tail into the molded plastic. So.
0: <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I don't know how long
1: it took him, but he, he definitely got featured in a lot of photos.
0: <laughs> but uh, I guess,
1: that as with everything, we, we sort of start off with uh safety i guess just so you know what you're doing before you start and try and do it so, so i want to say that uh one of the prerequisites for what we're about to describe is indeed a fursuit either on your person or on someone else and these are not really inexpensive items um on the cheap side you could probably get one made for about two grand and then it just escalates from there until we get into like the the super heavyweight category i mentioned where it can be easily $10,000. Mm-hmm. You can buy a car, you can buy a fur suit. It's about the same price bracket only with worse financing options.
0: I was going to uh, say good luck getting a bank to give you that on credit.
1: Well, you know, I'll I'll just tell them it's the 1954 Ford Bear. Um <laughs> but uh, so that's that's one thing is before you commit to spending great gobs of money, what a lot of people in the fandom do is they Hang out with someone who's a fursuiter, someone that they form a rapport with. Asking to wear someone's fursuit is a very intimate request. That's that's like asking to wear someone's face. So it's not something you do trivially. You really have to know someone well, and it pays if they know that you're curious about fursuiting and that you think you'd like to get one yourself, but before you commit to that much money, you'd like to have the experience to see what it's like because... You're going to want to know what it's like before you commit to it. It can be hot, very hot, um, and I mean that in the, in the BTU sense. Um, it can be very sweaty. It can be uncomfortable. You can have some breathing issues if you don't have proper ventilation, and you will definitely have a limited field of view, a very limited field of view. Even when people are out casually in fursuits to minimize the risk of someone either like walking into traffic or tripping over a brick or – and it's, it's awful to say this – or having someone sort of victimize them by like yanking on their suit or mm-hmm. assaulting them, we, we usually have spotters. A spotter is someone who would accompany you in a public space to help you navigate, to help you with tasks you can't accomplish with pause or, or you know, whatever. Uh, sometimes we – humorously and somewhat less charitably refer to them as furless lackeys. So if, you, <laughs> if you hear someone at a furry convention say, you know, my furless lackey is over there, it's, that means your fursuit spotter is over. So there's, there's the preliminary. Um, in terms of what to do once you're in the suit, first thing is get a sense for your field of vision so you know what you can see and what you can't see. Uh, it's very hard sometimes to wear a fursuit and have a proper field of vision without looking very mm-hmm. awkward and self-conscious. People often practice in front of a mirror. It takes a while to be able to maintain proper eye lines and so on so that you look reasonably natural in the suit and so that you can also see. You want to definitely think about cooling. Cooling is the number one thing. If you're going to get in trouble with anything in a fursuit. Nine times out of ten, it's because you're not hydrated or you're Mm -hmm. running too hot. Uh, For my own fursuit, uh, I have a cooling vest. It's the same type they use in NASCAR. It has packs in it that can be charged quite easily. Either take a basin full of ice and stash them in there, and they will turn solid white. And then over time, as they absorb heat, they go back to sort of an oily, liquidy state. Um, And they're completely non-toxic, so if one were to rupture... It's, I think it's like vegetable yeah, oil paste or I something. Say. So I have one of those. I always make sure before I go out for a suiting that I charge up those, and I have a, a full set of ice packs. Those last for about maybe three hours tops. Uh, it depends on the time of year, too.
0: Yeah, I can imagine, obviously, like summer, or if you're living in a place like Florida, it'll, you know, closer to the equator, it'll probably, you know, you'll need that all year round. One of the things oh. I have seen, I've seen someone try and experiment to... um put in a computer liquid cooling and fan system actually build it into their fursuit. I'm not sure how effective it was but I thought it was a cool idea to start with.
1: So in terms of fursuit safety uh, one of the things that uh, has been mentioned is using fans to cool fursuit heads and Mm -hmm. I would say that That is a method a lot of people use. It's not one that I use per se. Uh, I'm reasonably uh, heat resistant myself after many years of living in hot climates. But um, it is possible to get that done sometimes even on the floor of a convention at the dealer's den. There are people who will take your head and while you wait install what's basically an AT computer case fan into your head with some power source. Uh, we're talking like a—sorry, <laughs> my Alexa just tried to get in on the action. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, Amazon, the things yeah. you are getting today in your database, words <laughs> I've said. Uh, let me go turn that speaker off. <clears throat> but as I was saying, um, you can get that installed with a power source. It feels like a 30 to 40 millimeter fan, and it provides pretty good airflow, um, if that's something you'd like. And it's also very good for keeping your head from getting too sweaty after the fact.
0: Yeah, I can imagine I mean, it be, is. those fursuits really don't breathe, do they? Not it's,
1: as much as you'd like.
0: No, I can imagine thick th- thick fur, and there's probably a lot of foam in there in a lot of them. I can imagine it being getting very sweaty in there.
1: It does, and that's why most of us usually wear some layer of spandex or thermal mm-hmm. gear. Underneath the suit, that's probably a good thing to to mention as well. It's less of a safety thing and more of a a hygiene and cleaning Uh thing. Uh, I have some Under Armour heat gear that I use, and that makes it a lot easier to clean the interior of the fursuit because most of the sweat and nastiness gets wicked away by that under layer that you're wearing. Yeah. So there's there's that. Um, Hydration, very, Mm -hmm. very important, regardless of your temperature tolerance. Um, once upon a time, I gave ice-cold water to a fursuiter and got my first lecture on how water should be closer to room temperature. Just because you don't want a large temperature differential between someone's core body temperature and the water that you're providing, uh, you're going to want a good long straw yeah. to drink that.
0: yeah. And um, so, obviously, overheating is very easy. What happens, say, someone's out and about or even strapped down in their fursuit? What what steps should you take if um, they start overheating?
1: Well, the first thing to do is, just like you should always have a safe word, mm-hmm. you should always have some way to indicate whether you need out. Now, some people, this is one of those you know, safe, sane, consensual things that makes you go, uh, maybe you should think twice before you do this. It's a mm-hmm. thing that folks do, but... It is not unknown for some types of very specific fursuits, uh, specifically plush suits, the ones that are made to look like plush toys. Some people get into being stitched inside the suit so that they can't get out, so that there is no zipper. That's all well and good and quite hot, <laughs> but that's also quite hot. Caveat emptor.
0: Yes. A good go-to if like you like being trapped inside a suit, because... This is across many fetishes, is um, padlocks. And you can get some um, case padlocks where the connecting bar is actually metal wire instead of curved metal. And this means you can thread them through either stuff like um, zipper eyelets or boot eyelets quite easily.
1: Yeah, a lot of people do have fursuits that have been adapted to take advantage of a locking solution of their mm-hmm. own as well. Some people do like to be locked into their fursuits. For a while and then walked around. Just it's the same advice I'd give for any other type of a scene. Have a, a smart escape plan. Don't rely on luck. Make sure that if someone is having any type of, of an episode in a suit that you can get them out because what is inside that suit is a squishy biological product that has needs like not just hydration and cooling, but what if you have to use the restroom? Mm-hmm. What if you you know, what if you have some kind of an asthma episode or whatever? You have to have a strategy for getting to the person in that suit so you can keep them safe. It's always the responsibility of the dom to make sure that you're not going to put them in a dangerous situation. And in terms of the environment, ventilation, AC, ventilation, whenever possible. Stick to the cooler months for these activities if you can. Um, If you live in Alaska, that's almost the entire year. If you're in Texas, that's maybe a span of a couple of months.
0: Yeah. I imagine a lot of the things you need to think through would be the same as most bondage situations. Or mummification, even. Mummification is very analogous. I mean, yeah, you've got the restricted access to a person as well as restricted body movements. And obviously, temperature can be an issue. Yeah, I could imagine, like, if you go through the checklist of things you need to do for heavy bondage and mummification, there's probably going to be a big crossover in the Venn diagram there.
1: Yeah, so in a lot of ways, it's it's analogous to mummification. <laughs> You need to be very careful because the other person has a limited ability to express themselves and their needs. And the more layers people add to fursuit bondage, the more safety conscious and nervous I become, really, because Mm -hmm. you're continuing to limit people's ability to say something's really wrong here. I have a friend who's very dear to my heart, but he's also very into some extreme scenes, and he likes, among other things, fursuit bondage in breath play situation
0: oh i can see why that would make you nervous yeah he's
1: he's got a, a very hot picture of him in his fursuit mm-hmm. and he's inside a large balloon into which another balloon has been inserted so that the inner balloon inflates and presses him up against the outer balloon that's something i would not be comfortable doing
0: no i could, i can see so many ways that goes wrong
1: i i could see many but he's to be fair, he's also into some pretty extreme stuff, including firearms play, so we've... Right. <laughs> yeah, we, we have this arrangement where we know the end of the, the pool where we're comfortable playing together, and when it comes mm-hmm. to his other stuff, you know, he's, he's a big guy, he's a mm-hmm. grown-up, he can make his own decisions, even if I sort of, like, arch my eyebrow and say, uh, I'd really like to see you a year or two from now, Could you not... Do stuff that shortens your potential lifespan. Asking for a friend. Friend is you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have, not the comic book and film series, we had a com- dark comedy series over here called um, The League of Gentlemen.
1: The League of Gentlemen. It, it sounds familiar.
0: It's a very dark and twisted um, comedy about this little isolated English town called Royston Vaisley, where a lot of weird and odd characters live and one of the famous scenes from it is there's sort of like a sex group like a swingers club come cult run by a figure that calls himself daddy and it all goes a bit wrong when everyone in the group got put into inflatable bondage suits okay and had their um oxygen supply linked up to a pump oh jeez and it it's a dark scene because um obviously he's periodically turning off and on so do the breath play thing and he says the the safe word is julia bravo <laughs> and it gets very dark because he has a heart attack while the oxygen's off oh. and so you just have this very dark scene of all these people bumping around in giant balloons like calling out Julia Bravo.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: Yeah, I I hated watching it, but I just strictly remember that scene from the series. <laughs>
1: well, uh, art imitates life, and it's interesting that mm-hmm. we brought up that Channel 4 documentary because it's kind of gone full circle. Um, I know that uh, you, you have a nerdy bent, so if I mention mm-hmm. the DC Vertigo series Preacher, you probably know it.
0: Yes, I've seen the promo, with, and I know what you're going to bring up, the... Um... There with a... Z-
1: Zentai Spot's dead ringer with the dead ringer for his fiance in the, in the scene.
0: Yes, and I take it that wasn't in the comics.
1: Well, they, they always adopt things hmm. for the television versions of things in this country. Uh, when I was an English major, one thing that my, my professor who knew about screenwriting said was, if you adapt it literally from the book, you're not going to have a very good screen production.
0: No, no, it's so they, a very different medium.
1: It is. And and I think that they did pluck that from the Channel 4 documentary, especially given, I know a lot of them speak with American accents that are, even in my ears, incredibly good. But most of the cast is British, um, right down to the, the star who plays uh, Jesse.
0: Wow, so it's on my list of things to watch, along with the rest of Game of Thrones from Season 5 and all that. I mean, the only thing I've actually managed to make myself watch is American Gods,
1: American Gods I have not watched yet because I actually wanted to get through the book one way or another, finally, once and for all. So I'm listening to the audio adaptation where mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman actually narrates parts of it. And, you know, one thing I've got to give Mr. Gaiman credit for is he is so candid about sex and fetishistic behavior and so on. It really does add a lot of realism.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. It's um, – I mean, I remember all my friends have watched it and we was all talking about – how are they going to do the Billquist scene?
1: <laughs> I think you might be ahead of me. I'm, I'm about 50% of the way done.
0: Ah, I won't spoil it for you, but yes, Billquist gets interesting.
1: There, there there have been a lot of things, because the edition I'm listening to is the one that had the chunks that were originally cut and that Neil Gaiman said he would like to have put back.
0: Right, I see. So there, there
1: are other things I'm working through. It may take a while. I'm approximately 10 hours into the book with about nine hours left to go. <laughs> But it makes for a good commute, I'll, I'll say that. But uh, no, you are, you are correct if you thought that that scene in Preacher looked familiar. I actually brought it to Spot's attention when I saw it just because I was like, uh, I don't know if you get this in the UK, but you might want to know if, uh, if someone mentions Preacher that uh, you're kind of sort of by proxy in effigy in it. Wow. It's a good, it's a good suit, though. I'll, I'll <laughs> say I looked at it and I was like, actually, uh, you know, maybe Spot can ask if he can bid on that prop.
0: <laughs> well when you've got a filming budget you can do a lot
1: <laughs> uh, yes you can uh, very impressive rubber work on that dalmatian
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this is of course where we're going to find out that some septuagenarian was inside it the whole time
0: oh yeah obviously
1: yeah but uh let's see what else should we uh,
0: cover well we've covered the safety we've covered the background let's get to the fun stuff we should actually I... talk about playing in a fursuit what that would involve
1: so one thing is that when you're in a fursuit, you know, this is this is not Iron Man and it's not Kung Fu Panda. You're going to be clumsy. So it, it pays to sort of plan out in your head what you're going to do because it's not going to be all that spontaneous. Um, first of all, you have to know each other's suits. So some people have suits that are what we would call AC or anatomically correct. Mm-hmm. And they can have uh, a sheath and balls, you know, sort of stitched into it. Um, that's a, a very popular modification and then if people go out in public with that suit, they're the ones you usually see wearing pants or shorts or whatever. They're, that's shorthand for the rest of us who go. Either you're, you're doing some cosplay which is a possibility or more than likely you're, you're covering up the good bits so that you're acceptable in public. So you you need to know what your capabilities are. Do you you have, you know, holes in which areas and for what activities? And you need to generally know what it is you're about to get up to because you have to plan it out. It's not going to be spontaneous. And it also pays to have a a nice area with like-minded people. Now, at these furry conventions, people are always like, sex, 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 sex. It's got to be about sex. It's not predominantly, but... It happens. Mm-hmm. And it usually happens at room parties. The room parties are generally themed. Uh, I usually turn up at the ones that are rubber and leather themed and puppy play themed. There are also room parties that happen for fursuit sex, and that gets kept away from the general convention and population. And usually, they're a lot of fun for those who participate because it's not so much a one-on-one thing as it is a room full of fursuiters, and there's usually the equivalent of furless lackeys to make sure everyone stays hydrated and cool and to make uh-huh. sure no one's saying Julia Bravo. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the, the prerequisite for getting in the door is usually that you have to own a fursuit or that someone has vetted you for furless lackey duty. But when that happens, it can be a very affirming environment for everyone involved because everyone there is fundamentally in fursuit, in in character and can sort of express themselves sexually with each other without fear of a lot of judgment.
0: Oh, that sounds brilliant. So what sort of things happen? Is it just literally what you'd get, say, at an IML room party? or
1: It it depends on how involved it is. Now, there are some rooms where you will walk into a room party, and it may not even be a dedicated fursuit sex party, and you will see someone in a fursuit up in a sling in restraints, or you'll see someone strapped down to a bed with, humane medical restraints or whatever, mm-hmm. you do see a lot of that. Um, but then there are, it's kind of a weird mix of vanilla and not vanilla. In the the larger room parties that tend to be all the fursuiters together in, in one sort of communal setting, it tends to be kind of on the vanilla, oral, and anal side. Um, and I think that's, again, that comes into the logistics. It's hard to be spontaneous in a fursuit. You usually have to have a plan. You have to know what it is you want to do. And when you have that many people in in one room in one setting, it's like, pardon the expression, it's like herding cats and dogs and horses and whatever else. So it it tends to stay simple. If you have a fursuiter who's kind of the center of attention at a party whose broader theme might be bondage and rubber and leather, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who usually get lavished with attention. People want to touch the fursuit. They want to touch them. They want to put them in bondage. You know, they might you know, use some kind of a milking apparatus or jack them off. I've seen some people do vac racks in fursuit, and that again gets into my concern about the more layers you add, the harder it is to communicate, and the more, you know, the risk of something unfortunate happening becomes. Oh,
0: because, I mean, I can imagine that, because even in a normal vac rack, your movements are quite restricted. If you have then got this outer shell of a, um like, thick fursuit, any movements you had would have been like deadened to the outside observer.
1: Oh, yeah. And there are other yeah. things that concern me, too, that are less about life and limb and more about your investment in your fursuit. Mm-hmm. You have you have to be careful because it's it's a fursuit. It's not real fur in any sense of the word. So it doesn't heal. It doesn't grow back. If you pull on your fur too hard the wrong way, it's going to fall out. And you're going to wind up with bare spots. Those will be bare spots for the life of the suit. And when I see someone in a vac rack, the first thing that makes me cringe is the heads are largely made out of foam. And if you have your muzzle straight up and you're applying the vac rack down, you're, yeah, is yeah, you're going to wind up looking like a Nickelodeon yeah. character that just ran into a wall. <laughs> you're going to look like. So really? you, you have. Oh, thank
0: Well, I was going to say some models of vac rack. And um, these ones I prefer to use are the ones with the head hole. Those those can be good, and people
1: do like those, but. Those of us in the furry community do tend to be very into full coverage. Mm-hmm. And that, that also plays into where fursuit sex comes from is there are a lot of people in the fandom who find fursuits incredibly attractive but do not find the human form attractive. So full coverage for them is kind of like a if I don't have that, it just isn't good for me type of a thing.
0: So they're, so they're actually turned off by humans, or like...
1: You'll find a good number of those. They're very attracted to anthropomorphic characters. They're not very attracted to the human body. I'm sure they're... You know, if I were to, to go and bring my boy up from upstairs to talk about it, because his doctorates mm-hmm. in psychology, I'm sure he could talk about all the mechanics that go into that. But you you will find people where you're like, hey, do you want, do you want to make out or, or do you want to go play or do you want to do bondage or do you want to do anything with a human? And they'll be like, um, not so much. It's not my thing. And then if that same person walks downstairs in a full fursuit, you'll see them, like, pivot their head all the way around and go, oh, oh, I didn't know that you were actually attractive. You had to put on your face there, didn't you? Right, okay. So that's a a big thing in the fandom is full coverage for a lot of people is not optional. It's mandatory. And for a lot of people, fursuit sex is the primary way in which they relate to other people. It's not to say that they never engage in non-fursuit sex but for them that's kind of like offering plain vanilla sex to a hardcore person into leather mm-hmm. and BDSM is it it becomes sort of like uh, it feels like snacking before dinner but sure well
0: i mean now you said that there are people like in the leather and rubber community where it goes beyond just a fetish and becomes a sexual fixation where they can't get off without it without that element being present
1: the psychological term is paraphilia that's Thank you. Fair. <laughs> It's not like I live with a psychologist or anything. Um, but, yeah, it's it's it becomes a paraphilia for a lot of people. Now, that's not to say universally it's a paraphilia. Mm-hmm. But I know I could count on my hands and my feet and probably a few abacuses, whatever the plural of abacus is. And there would be plenty of cases I could bring up of people who just don't get into sex of any sort, no matter how kinky or vanilla, without full coverage. And and sometimes that's a fursuit for them And there are also a number of Very well tailored and made rubber suits That are made to look like animals mm-hmm. um, Those of us with like Full leather suits That look like animals Much, much rarer And and that sort of brings into uh, Smash Grey Wolf that I mentioned earlier Who's so well known in the fandom He has a full-body leather warrior wolf suit with bondage attachment points built into it, including all up and down the tail. And he is probably the only case I can think of off my head of someone who's gone the full leather route or not really a fursuit. I guess at that point
0: it's like a a leather suit. Oh, wow. I was going to say, where does sort of leather and rubber play into fursuits? So
1: a lot of people attempt to combine things that they're into. Mm -hmm. So if you have a fursuit, some people have leather restraints and harnesses and, you know, other items that are sized and tailored not for their body, but for their body Mm -hmm. in the suit. And there are a number of leather vendors who are also usually on the floor at these furry cons, uh, at Anthrocon even, you know, Kage hasn't driven all of them out. Uh, There's Legardo leathers. Legardo is at just about every furry convention I have ever attended and he will measure you right there on the spot in fursuit for cuffs and for harnesses and for whatever else, and he'll tailor them for you. In some cases, he has fursuit sizes readily available right there on the floor so that you can later on take them back to your room and do something fun. Um, there's also another leather vendor, but he's more about creating stuff that's BDSM-related and pup play-related. It's winehound leathers. and. Okay. I own one of their paddles. An absolutely beautiful masterwork with, like, bear paws and really mm-hmm. elaborate work and brass. And I almost feel bad every time I use it just because <laughs> I, I can see the leather flexing and I'm like, it's going to wear, mm-hmm. but it's really good and it's meant to be used for this. So th- you will see that there's a lot of, of crossover with that. In fact, actually, the leather worker who did my leather bear hood is a member of the furry fandom as well. Sadly, he stopped creating uh, the masks he was making. I think the demand was a little high for him because everyone loves them. I think I got the last one off of his production line before he stopped.
0: Okay. And so these masks, are they like to go over a fursuit head or to replace it?
1: In in these cases, we're talking about something that would probably be worn outside of a fursuit head but not necessarily in a completely gear-free context. Like zentai suits are very, very, very popular. Um, Not just on par with what a lot of people saw on the Channel 4 documentary with Spot, mm-hmm. but a lot of people go through great effort to sort of tailor, you know, either themselves if they're handy with a, a sewing machine or more likely through an external vendor that takes custom orders, a, a spandex suit that fits the colors and patterning of their persona, of their furry character. And that would definitely be a context you frequently see people wearing those heads with. And that that also gets into one of those situations where con staff usually has to figure out, because there are so many possible combinations,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what gear is legitimate for the halls, and it's sort of like a, okay, fine. And what gear raises a red flag. So the spandex suits usually get people looking twice at them.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Because, I mean, spandex reveals everything.
1: It does. And for people who want to let it all hang out, that's what quiet room parties Mm -hmm. Mm are. But no, the... There's there's a spectrum, too, and you'll also see there's not just full fur suits. There are also what we call partials. And are they
0: where they're just their head, hands, and feet? They are
1: indeed. They are indeed. And a lot of people prefer those because it gives them more mobility. There's less overheating. There's less prep to get into and out of it. Um, they can wear a wider range of clothing with it, some of which may mm-hmm. be their everyday clothing. So they don't have to worry about getting something special, tailored or sized for the outside of a fursuit. But you'll see a lot of mixing and matching and combinations and people trying, you know, in, in public, you'll see people trying different combinations of fursuit items in private in these room parties. You'll see people trying different elements of fursuits with other fetish gear to sort of alter, augment, change, somehow or other, you know, remix things together.
0: I mean, I imagine you can get so many combinations out of it.
1: You really can. And that's why people love to go to the conventions. Every year there's someone who's got something new, whether that's G-rated or more than G. Mm -hmm. Um, Microcontrollers and lights are becoming a big thing right now. A lot of people are now layering their fursuit in such a way that there are electronics just below the fur and that there are LED patterns that not only light up, but they'll pulse, they'll strobe, they'll change colors. It's, it's, a, it's a very dedicated com- uh, community of DIY people, that's what we are.
0: Oh, that sounds brilliant. I imagine a lot of them have a crossover with sort of the um, cosplay community.
1: They do. You, you will see a lot of that. A lot of <laughs> props that you might look at and go, wait a minute, that's from anime. Or, you know, outerwear or clothing that comes from some identifiable series. There, there is a good deal of that. People do cross over into a lot of different fandoms. Furry is definitely adjacent to science fiction,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. fantasy, has a lot of crossover. That Venn diagram has a lot of of overlap. So you do see that as well.
0: Uh, I mean, do a lot of furries try and go for the headsets with the wagging tail?
1: I actually have known at least one person, and he was an engineer, and he was frankly an an underrated genius. (laughs) He once built an animatronic mechanism or his tail for his fursuit with a microcontroller where he could not only wag, he could set the rate at which he wagged, he could set different positions, and he did it by, like, I think he soldered paper clips together for the framework. Oh, wow. He, he, yeah, he was well-known. That, that know- is impressive. Yeah, he, he was well-known enough that he actually went by the name Wolf Tail because that was, <laughs> that was his claim to fame was inventing a, an animatronic tail attachment for a suit.
0: Wow. So... One of the vendors I've seen, um, just for the general kink community, specializes in um, molded rubber animal
1: heads. Yes. Now, when you talk about vendors, are you talking about the ones that are molded rubber animal heads with a gas mask integrated, or that are just molded rubber animal heads?
0: I believe just molded rubber animal heads. Uh, I'm really throwing out my brain to try and remember the vendor.
1: Um, Hmm. I would have to dig around, because there have been a lot of different people who do that. The one that stands out to me is, um, I know you've seen my recon profile. If you've ever seen the one mm-hmm. in me of, of, in the full-body neoprene suit with the uh, the rubber horse head, that yes. is actually that is actually a gas mask I'm wearing that was made custom. Really? That there is uh, a a person in the community he's down in the San Francisco mm-hmm. Bay Area who does. I think the uh, business name he went by was Wild Gas Masks. I don't know if he's still using that these days, but he does. Rubber animal heads with an integrated gas mask component. And that was me trying on a friend's uh, horse head and, and neoprene suit at a at a play party at a fur con for the confusion. And it looks like Wild Gas Masks is indeed still up and going. They've got their website going and a, a very fetching picture of someone in one of their dragon uh, masks and a full-body rubber suit right now on their front page.
0: I'm um, just looking at it now. Yes, yes, they do. So they... Oh, yes, I can see the ventilation just on the side of the snout.
1: Yeah, I've I've constantly asked them if they would do a bear, but they have a limited number of molds due to the way the production works. They kind of have to pick their shot.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Although bears, I have to say, are quite common. Not so I mean, much as, like, foxes and wolves and dragons, but...
1: We're we're one of the tent poles of the furry fandom. Yeah. But at the same time, canines, felines, um, and horses outnumber us by a, a fair amount, and it's It's not necessarily coincidental. It's because people in the furry fandom, they tend to latch on to it very early on in life. There's Mm -hmm. usually something they see, just like with every fetish, that that sort of triggers a, a combination between arousal and anthropomorphic animals, right? So a lot of people, when you ask them, what was your inspiration for getting into the fandom, they'll talk about Disney's Robin Hood. You know, that's one that people talk about all the time because Robin is always in bondage situations and has a rather charming accent. Um, People talk about SWAT cats who are frequently in bondage situations and have this male bonding buddy-buddy thing. Um, In my case, when I was a kid, because I'm horribly old as as dirt, it was the new adventures of Flash Gordon for me who had uh, Prince Thun, the lion man, who was constantly in a loincloth and bondage situations. Um, so everyone has something that usually trips that trigger. And I think that the bears, we're, I don't know that we're front and center of a lot of the things that inspired people back in the previous wave of the furry fandom. Um, I think that it was more sort of the Road Rovers SWAT cats era that we're dealing with right now.
0: Yeah, I, I've always been surprised sharks haven't become more popular with sort of my generation. Just because I remember one of the staple cartoons of TV growing up was Street Shark.
1: You know, it, I think it depends on how approachable they seem. There mm. are people who do marine life. Uh, I know of one uh, British person in particular who has a full-body orca suit that's made out of rubber because you wouldn't really do that in fur. Yeah. And and then I know someone here in America who has an orca fur suit where they actually did it in fur. It looks good, but at the same time, you're like furry whales. Very odd evolutionary twist.
0: Well, yeah, it's not... But, I mean, that's part of the fun of it, is you can do your own thing. Uh, I see a lot of hybrid... Like, in the online illustration, I see a lot of hybrid characters. Like, you'll get a wolf with antlers or wings or...
1: There are a lot of of chimeras in the fandom. (sighs) People who are hybrids of one thing or another. (laughs) And I think that comes from a couple of things. Number one, it's very... It's very important to people in the furry fandom that they feel unique and that they stand out. And after you've gone through the entire spectrum of rainbow colors for animals, then it becomes a little bit more like what makes me different from big cat anthro number 384. And so people often turn to hybridization as one way to express themselves where they will take characteristics they identify with from more than one animal because then they can make something that feels more unique to them.
0: Mm. I mean, it does allow for a great degree of um, creativity. And Sorry, I what I was going to say.
1: <laughs> That's okay.
0: Um, I th- think maybe we should start wrapping it up now.
1: Pro- probably. I think we've we've gone over the Mutual the, uh, of Omaha's yeah. Wild Kingdom exhaustively. Yes. But uh, I, I would say the last thing uh, I would recommend is if anyone mm-hmm. is interested in you know, fursuiting in any capacity. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, for G-rated or, you know, NC-17 or more rated activities. Your best bet is really to go out and find some fursuiters and talk with them and discuss your interests. Um, There are forums online for that. Um, Mm -hmm. As as always, Fur Affinity is where a lot of us hang out. Um, That is a a very well-known website, or sharing art, and people sometimes share pictures of their fursuits or socialize there. That's uh, furaffinity.net, spelled mm-hmm. more or less like it sounds. Um, and there are other places, too. Uh, Telegram is becoming the the new happen-and-night spot where we all hang out. If you know someone on there and get an invite to a channel, you might be able to chat in real time with some folks about it.
0: Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I. Th- are there many local um, fur meets because I know in London there's sort of an annual, like quarterly meet up with all the London furs. Is there anything like that around, or in the US? So, or
1: the London furs are very active. I don't know what the current status is of their meetups. Um, mm-hmm. I know that they've uh, had some recent uh, public enough that it's reached this side of the Atlantic, soul searching about mm-hmm. people showing up to said fur suit, uh, fur meets and fur that they felt had a reputation based on the pictures they'd seen online. No, mm-hmm. so they uh, were asked to change venues by one of their hosts. And I don't know what happened after that.
0: I will ask around because I know a few people that regularly attend them. So yeah. I can inquire into about that for a future episode. Well, thank you, Azura. It's been a brilliant chat. I think we've all learned a lot about the fairy community. Um, it's ins and outs. And you've been such a great resource. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. If people want to know more or contact you, uh, how can they find you?
1: So uh, I'm on Telegram, like, like all the cool kids mm-hmm. these days, and uh, we'll put the contact information in the show notes in case uh, I'm, I'm hard to mm-hmm. make out while I'm spelling. But you can find me on Telegram as at sign Arteriel, and that's spelled A-R-T-A-I-R-G-E-A-L. Or you can find me on the kinky.business instance of Mastodon as Arzur. That's A-R-Z-H-U-R.
0: Thank you. Um, As always, it's brilliant to have you on. Um, And if our listeners wish to contact or write in on this subject or any subject they wish to introduce or talk about, we have the Kinky Boys podcast email, which will be in the show notes. Uh, We're also on Facebook on the Kinky Boys podcast Facebook page. You can contact me personally on Twitter at Mouseboy or I am also on Mastodon at the Kinky.Business instance under at BootBlackCub. Uh, as always, thank you and good night.